you got a copy of your scriptures, meet me in Luke chapter 12. If you're new to the whole Bible thing, turn about three quarters to the back. Look for some guys' names. Matthew, Mark, Luke is how it will go. If you got to John, Acts, Romans, stop, turn back. That's too far. Uh, while you're getting there, I want to welcome those of you here in the room. Welcome those of you online, our home church locations watching. So glad you're here. We're closing out this Fight to Flourish series that we started three weeks ago. We're going to build on an idea we started last week about the dynamics of desire. In short, your desires are infinite, but you are not. So in the language of mathematics, infinite desire minus finite soul equals restlessness. Perhaps you've experienced that, how there's always something more to do, always something more to experience, always another restaurant to go to, always another book to read, always another show to stream, which again, I'm not saying any of that is bad. I believe we are made to live with God forever in the world that he created, which is why our desires are infinite But when we fall away from God and we don't do the things that he has asked us to do, this infinite desire will remain. It will just be misplaced. We'll be put on things that will lead to our destruction. That was the whole point of week one. Distraction will often lead to destruction. So our only hope in combating this problem is to put our desire in its proper place on God and put all other things in their proper place below God. Ultimately, nothing in this life apart from God can satisfy our desires. Tragically, if we continue to chase after those desires to infinity, the result of that will be a chronic state of restlessness or worse leads to anger and angst, and disillusionment, and depression, all of which leads to a life of hurry, busyness, overload, shopping, materialism, careerism, a life of more. And what's that do? Makes us restless. The cycle spins out of control. To say it another way, we're in a fight. A fight to flourish, a fight to give God our time and our schedule and our agenda and our stuff, which is what we need to talk about today, because in America, things are not things. Things are identities. This is the gospel that most people in this country believe. Things will make me happy. Ironically, I found this gospel of America in the gospel of Luke. So let's go. Luke chapter 12. Starting in verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Talk about awkward. This is a small village. Uh, Brother's probably there. It's like, shut up, Bill. Told you, you get what you get. Get nothing. Jesus replied, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to everybody else, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. He told him this parable. 
The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? Got no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns. And there will store all my surplus grain. I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. And this is this the message of America? Take life easy. Retire. Get on the beach. Get the little umbrella thing. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but are not rich towards God. Drop down to verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, about your money, about your stuff. For your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes nor moth can destroy. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God, help our heart to lead to you, that you will be our treasure. Do what you promised to do. Speak to us now. We need to hear from you. We need you to invade our lives. Pour out on us the spirit of wisdom that you promised to anyone who asks. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. In case you're wondering, you have 32 shopping days until Christmas. That's somewhat misleading because shopping days used to be a thing. Now with the internet, everything's open all the time. I should have said you have 32 days until Christmas which is what you have. So you better be prepared. If you're waiting to Black Friday to find some sales, forget about that. Ain't no Black Friday this year. It's Black November. Everything's on sale <laughs> all the time. I probably should have said it's been a black six months or eight, nine months. When did we start? March? Judas Priest. Black everything. Uh, but everything's on sale. Go nuts. For those of you Scrooges, you should know that uh, in America last year, 93% of people bought Christmas gifts. Uh, if you're in that 7% that didn't, I don't know, look at your life a little bit. Uh, why or why not? Uh, but they spent on average $930. Your wife might say she doesn't want anything. Do not fall for that trap, okay? That is a false narrative. Uh, but you have to be careful about not accidentally buying the wrong thing, because that can be worse they not buying anything at all, nor do you want to go into debt as the vast majority of the 93% of people who spent $930 all did, uh, which is why you need a plan, which is why you should be glad you're at church this morning, Amen. watching online, because I've got a plan for you to follow. According to my extensive online research of roughly eight minutes, the hottest gift for a boy this year the Yoda plush doll from the hit show The Mandalorian. If you're buying a gift for a girl, she'll want the Bloom doll, where this little figurine comes in a pot, and if you water the pot, the doll blooms. Amazing. It's magic. Kids all want it. Girls. If you're buying for a woman, according to Esquire magazine, she wants a Miranda robe by Ugg. 
It is sinfully soft, I'm told. (laughs) She might want a massage, an Apple Watch, diamond jewelry, perfume, or cooking utensils. Men, also from Esquire, they want meat, smokers, whiskey, or boots. That's what they want. I don't know. I didn't write the article. Here's why I bring this to your attention. Because I would guess if I pulled each one of us here this morning, we'd all say, yeah, I wouldn't mind getting a gift. Gifts are fun. Christmas is good. And if I really pushed in on this subject and didn't limit the conversation to just gifts, but also talked about money, I think we'd all say that, yeah, I I wouldn't mind having a little more money this year at Christmas either. And it's not even that we think more money will make us happier. It's that we believe more money would make things a little easier. Anybody willing to admit that? My hand is up on this just as anybody else's. Nothing wrong with that. Okay, so dynamics of desire. God created us with a proclivity towards wants. It, what it wants is what gives many of us determination. It's what helps us achieve. But you might jot this down if you're taking notes. Here's my entire sermon in one sentence. So you were made to pour, not store. You were na- made to pour out your life, not store up possessions. So what Jesus just said, right? That when you store up things for yourself, verse 21, and you don't give, verse 33, uh, God will take things from you, verse 20, could have also taken you to Acts 20 when the disciples record the words of Jesus when He says it's more blessed to give than receive. But here's the rub. Here's the friction that we have within the text. Here's where iron has to sharpen iron a little bit because nobody here would argue that. Of course we're supposed to give. Of course we're supposed to pour. Of course we're supposed to be generous. We were made to pour, not store. Nobody would argue that. Yet if you look at statistics, the average Christian in America gives away 2% of their income. The average non-Christian gives away 3% to charity and uh, political organizations. So how is it, if we know this is true, and we know the Bible teaches generosity, what keeps us from giving more away than our worldly counterpart? It's what I'll call the scarcity mindset. Basically, we'd give more if we had more. I'd pour more if I had more stored. I actually did a little research on this idea of having more, did some research on being rich and giving, found at Gallup, did a poll, uh, interviewed a, a lot of people trying to answer the question, what is rich? In other words, if, if you want to be rich, what is it? At what point will you know that you are actually rich? Like when do you have enough money and stuff for you to say, okay, I finally crossed the line, now I am rich. What's interesting is the responses varied according to where people found themselves financially. So, for example, those that made $30,000 a year, some of you might make a little more, some of you might make a little less. If you're in that range, the average response, what would make you rich if you're at $30,000 a year? You would be rich if you made $74,000 a year. If you slightly over-doubled 
your income, you would feel very rich. There are some of you who make $74,000 a year. You say, I got news for you. That ain't rich. For those that make $50,000 a year, what is rich? They responded $100,000. They would feel rich at $100,000. Again, there's many of you who uh, have uh, maybe kids in a private school or mortgage, uh, a couple cars, insurance. You're saying $100 ain't rich where I am at. But that's what people say they would need. What's fascinating to me is they asked the top income earners uh, in the survey, so well into six figures on average that they make, so over $100,000. What is rich? To be rich, according to them, is to have $5 million in assets. That's when you're rich. So the poor joker who's only got $2 million in assets, you know, they're not rich at all. They need $5 million. And what that should tell you is most people live with the scarcity mindset. It's not enough. We need more because what is rich? Rich is a moving line. Because how many of you, when you were making this amount of money, said, if I just get to this amount of money and you got to that amount of money and now you're like, well, now I got to get to this amount of money because rich is a moving line. Now, I don't know how your mind works, but my mind started wondering, well, if rich is $5 million, what does $5 million even look like? What, what could I do in order to get to $5 million? And God bless the internet, because I found an article that talked about what are people willing to do in order to earn or get $5 million? Don't know if you've considered this before, but according to the article, 54% of people would listen to country music for the rest of their lives for 5 million genuine United States dollars. I personally, I'm, I'm a hard pass on the country music for the rest of my life. I don't generally like country music, and I don't mean to denigrate those who do. Which, if you listen to country music, denigrate means to put down. Uh, I know you might not read so good, so. Uh, 42%, I'll move on. 42% of people said that they would have all their teeth removed for $5 million. The country music fans are like, I already did that, you know. <laughs> no teeth either, okay. Uh, I actually, uh, this is not fair of me to, I actually do listen to some country music. My favorite country music is the, the country music I never have to hear. But this is too easy. The country music jokes, too easy. 42% teeth removed. 50% of people said for $5 million, 50% said that they would allow one random person on earth to die. Let that sink in. We've just valued life at $5 million. This is equally hard for me to get my uh, mind around because the survey was clearly done pre-pandemic. 24% of people said they would live in solitude for the next 20 years. 20 years, no people, but you got your $5 million. Many of us can't even go for two weeks. Nevertheless, 20 years. But isn't it interesting how almost nobody feels rich They're willing to do about anything to get rich, yet comparatively speaking, we are by sheer fact that we live in this country incredibly rich. Now, 
Look, I, I know that there are some people even in the room who are facing extreme financial situations, uh, medical bills. You might be going through a divorce, a single parent. You're just fighting to stay alive. I don't want to diminish the reality of your situation. But overall, the vast majority of people that I'm talking to, the vast majority of people watching online right now, they're actually doing okay. Because when we get hungry, if we can get into our car and drive to get food, that puts us in the top 15% of the richest people in the world. You are so wealthy that you not only have a car, but you can afford to put gas in your car. You can afford the insurance it takes to drive the car. You can afford uh, to pay for the license. And when you get into your rich car, you can drive past 14 other restaurants in order to get to the restaurant that you prefer to go to. A restaurant where somebody else has milked the cow to get your chocolate shake and somebody else butchered the cow and ground up all the meat and somebody else cut the head off the chicken and plucked all the feathers for your nuggets and somebody else did everything that it takes to cook the food and somebody else uh, prepared it, somebody else wrapped it all up, somebody else uh, put the little garnish on it and somebody else put it in the bag And you complain that all that took seven minutes for you to get your food. That's how rich most of us are. And I don't want you to be sorry for being rich. I just want you to be good at being rich. I want us to be rich in a way that honors God. And in order to be good at it, you first have to acknowledge that you are it. Somebody say, I'm rich. I'm rich. Notice that when Jesus talks about being rich, it's never in a way that says it's wrong to be rich. In actuality, many times he attributes the richness that people have. He says God is who actually made them rich. In verse 16 of our text, he makes the distinction that there's a rich guy who the ground yielded an abundant harvest to. In other words, he's attributing the farmer's success to God. God made the man rich by giving him ground that yielded an abundant harvest, which is important because if God can trust you with little, right, then he can trust you with much. And if he can trust you with much, it must be advantageous of you to have much. It is. If you understand the difference between pouring and storing, because here's what else is true. Sometimes it's a disadvantage to have much. I'll prove it to you. Because if you go to a developing nation on day number one, you will be shocked. Your stomach will be turned at the extreme poverty. You won't believe what you're seeing and feeling. And you will feel so much sorrow and compassion for the people that are living in squalor. It will be virtually undescribable for you to come back and try and tell other people what you witnessed. By day three or four, what you're going to find is suddenly you realize that these poor people have something you don't have. They've got time with people. They've got committed relationships. They often have intimacy with God. And what they don't have that you do have is stress and anxiety and the burden of managing all your stuff. And on day five or so, you're going to find that you're a little bit jealous 
of their simplicity. There's a part of you that's jealous of their togetherness. There's a part of you that's jealous of their love for one another and the appreciation for community that they have. And you're jealous of the adoration that they have towards God. See, one of the things that struck me when I've been in situations like this was how inviting the people were. How inviting they were with regards even to their homes. By home, I mean four walls. Uh, Way smaller than even the stage. There'll be a bed over here, another bed over here, no sheets, just a dusty, nasty mattress. There'll be clothes piled in garbage bags. Over here, there'll be a propane stove, maybe a wood-burning stove. Uh, the bathroom's outside. That's just a hole in the ground. And so you got to go out and use it whenever the, uh, you know. Uh, yet, everybody was excited to invite us into their home because it was theirs. And it was where the very best of life happened. And they were excited to have someone of our dignity, that's their words, someone of our status. They wanted us in their home. It's not the vast majority of Americans' attitude. Our homes are not where the very best of life happens. Our homes are refueling stations where we go top off our charge and our devices top off their charge. And then we take them back to the frantic activity and pace of life that we're all rushing around in. So hear me. I don't share this so that you'll feel guilty. Don't feel guilty. But do feel responsible. When it comes to busyness, when it comes to what we talked about last week and having a Sabbath, when it comes to your stuff, don't feel guilty. Feel responsible. Understand that God has given you your wealth for enjoyment, but God's also given you your wealth for purpose. See, according to Jesus, gold in your hand can do good things. Gold in your heart, it does very bad things. That's why he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So everything else that I'm about to talk about is not coming from a place of guilt. It's coming from a place of responsibility. I want something for you, not from you. I certainly don't want your money. I want you to be responsible. And I want you to know from a responsible perspective that roughly half of the families who call New Anthem Church home, only half of them have a plan for how they will steward and give a portion of their income back to God. I genuinely have no idea who gives what. But I... No, because I asked that roughly half of us have a plan. And what Jesus is talking about here with regards to being rich towards God is returning your richness back to Him. Because God is after your heart, which means He needs to take control of your finances. And the problem with most people's finances is there's not a plan. And as you know, if you've been here for any length of time, I've talked about it hundreds of times, the best plan for the most amount of people, is to give 10, save 10, live on 80. Give 10% of your income to God, save 10% of your income in account, live on 80% 
of your income. Matter of fact, I'm so committed to the idea of a tithe that I've said, if you think this church is only after your money, then tithe somewhere else. Give 10%. And I've also said that if you give 10% of your income for three months and you feel like God hasn't blessed you or done something radical in your life, I'll give you your tithe back. We call it three-month tithe challenge. If you want to give three months, God hasn't done anything, we will return all the money back to you. So the question that I really want you to ask yourself is, what's my plan? Do I have a plan to pour, not store? So let's briefly chat about the problem. Because the problem is not money. The problem is not the scarcity. The problem is the scarcity mindset that you think is never enough. Uh, we think the problem is the money, but in fairness, the problem might be how you spend your money. Uh, it might be living above your means, which the vast majority of Americans in this country spend 108% of their income every year. How is that possible? You're going into debt. Uh, that's dumb. But moreover, the main problem with our plan is that we prefer, prefer intervention over prevention. We want something during the vention, not before the vention. This is prevention versus... Never mind. Forget about money for a second. Talk about your physical health. We ignore what we eat until our heart gives out, right? Because we prefer the intervention of a heart bypass and medication over the prevention of eating what's good for you and exercise. In your relationships, in your marriage, we prefer the intervention of the counselor over the prevention of talking and communicating. It's human nature to avoid prevention. So when it comes to giving, we like to solve a problem instead of prevent a problem. Intervention giving is what most people like to do because that's how they prefer the rest of their lives that somebody would just intervene. But having a plan is preventative. Systematic giving, which is what the vast majority of the people who give to this church do, they've got an automatic draft withdrawal set up. Uh, that's preemptive. It's preventative. But preemptive giving is not cool to talk about. <laughs> it would be much cooler for me to stand up here and give you some emotional story about how the church met somebody's needs we came through for them. We helped put an addict in recovery. They got baptized, married. They're uh, now uh, saved. And we would all cheer because that's miraculous. And I'd say, let's all give to this one more time. We can help somebody else. And we'd set a goal and you'd meet the goal. Matter of fact, I've never set a financial goal in this church that you all haven't met. Even in the midst of a global pandemic, you helped raise $10,000. Start a church, not even ours. And we were able to give that away. But here's my point. I can't, I can tell you about lives that have been changed because of your giving. I can give you a number of different stories of where that has happened. And it's awesome. What I can't tell you, I can't tell you how many families were preemptively helped because mom and dad stayed away from the drugs and alcohol to begin with. I can't tell you how many teens avoided promiscuity because they had a circle of friends around them. They were part of a group. 
I can't tell you how many families stuck together through financial crisis and hard times because they had a community of believers surrounding them. What I can tell you is the prevention is better than the intervention. And I just want you to join me and my family in having a plan for prevention giving. Just to drive this point home, did you know that this building was offered to us for sale? I don't know if we want it, which is why I haven't said anything about it. But what if, because of your preventative giving, we had the money in the bank, and we could do what my kids do when we play Monopoly, we just buy it. Just whatever we land on, we're buying it. I don't care what it is, I'm buying it. What if... When they offered us the building, I could have said, sure, yeah, we'll take it and buy it. Some of you are building up for yourselves, your barns, and waiting for an opportunity. And Jesus is saying, well, that's foolish. You have no idea what tomorrow is going to hold. So don't wait. Have a plan. Give away. Jesus even said, sell your possessions and pour, not store And again, make no mistake, we as a church do not need your money. But listen to me very closely, because you wouldn't attend a church that did need your money. You know why? Because every Sunday, they'd only be talking about how much they need your money. Furthermore, your kids wouldn't have any goldfish and games and kids ministry. So they'd never want to come back. So put your thinking caps on because if you only give to a church that needs your money, but you won't attend a church that actually needs your money, you'll never give to a church that you actually attend. You tracking with that? So don't fall for that. And don't wait to be asked. Prevention giving is better than intervention giving. Giving is just a response to God's gift to us. John 3.16 doesn't say, For God so loved the world that He gave 10% of His Son. Does it? Nope. He gave all of it. So we give because God gave. And our giving is an opportunity for us to join up with what He's already doing in the earth through the local church. Make no mistake, the local church is the hope of the world. We are God's plan A. There ain't a plan B. And all I'm asking you to consider and think about is why would you want to miss out on what God is doing? I hope you realize that most of what the government is fighting over in terms of health care and unemployment and sanctity of life, you realize if the church was being the church, we would render the government largely impotent. Because yeah. we're taking care of our own. Ain't nobody looking to the hills because our help don't come from Capitol Hill. Our help comes from the Lord. So make a plan. That's all I'm saying. But pay attention because this man had a plan. What was his plan? Store up for self. See, it's just the wrong plan. Build bigger barns. Store up for myself. Wrong plan. Being rich toward God. Right plan. And hear me, being rich toward God has nothing to do with a percentage. The widow gave everything she had, right? So do I think you should give 10%? Yes, I do. 
Should some of you give more than 10%? Probably. Should some of you give less than 10%? Maybe. I don't know. What I do know is that God has asked you to be rich towards Him. So how do you know how much you should give? Well, the Bible tells us that you should decide in your heart. So it's between you and God to figure it out together. So you don't believe the myth. It's the same myth the Israelites believed. God said, hey, I'm going to drop manna from heaven. Uh, most of the days, I just want you to collect what it is that you need for that day. Don't store up anything for yourself. On Friday, get more. So on Sabbath, Saturday for the Jews, store up for yourself. Well, what happened? They didn't trust God. So they started storing up for themselves on Monday, and everything in the camp went rancid, moldy, disgusting. People started throwing up. They had the scoots. It was the whole thing. Okay, You don't want to be part of that. But the myth is that you'll believe if God doesn't show up, I'll still be fine because I store it up for myself. Well, who are you trusting? See, it's a good tension to be in when you're trusting God with everything. And might I just push back here a little bit by saying the American goal and the farmer's goal, we talked about this, same. Make a ton and then don't work. That's the farmer's goal. That's the vast majority of Americans' goal. Make a ton, retire. And Jesus comes along and says, uh, that's all about you. The point of life is not retiring from a career so that you can sit on a beach. The point of life is retiring from a career so that you can free yourself up to do more for God. Don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with retirement. I love that you're retired. Because it frees you up to help me wreak havoc on the gates of hell. Because now you can do the things that the people who are working can't do. Amen, somebody? So please retire. But start using your retirement for good. The, the, the quickest pace should be at the end of your race. Right? Y'all ever ran before? No. Okay. Well, let me close with this. <laughs> I heard a story about a newly married couple traveling during their honeymoon. And like most married couples, they're driving to their next destination and they're newlyweds. So, you know, they're lovey-dovey. I love you so much. No, I love you. You don't talk to me like that. But the husband, as he crested the hill, and they looked up and they saw a deer in the road. He overcorrected. It was dark. Skidded off the road. Hit the ditch. End over end. The car started rolling. Both were injured. They're in a dire situation. Knocked unconscious. Husband comes to first. Kind of tries to shake the cobwebs out, figure out, assess the situation. Looks over and notices his uh, wife is bleeding profusely. Doesn't know what to do, but he knows that if she doesn't get help soon, she'll die. He kicks out the window, scurries out of the car. In divine intervention, he reads a sign that they crashed near... Dr. Jones, M.D., building right across the street. So he scrambles over to his wife's side of the car. He knows he probably shouldn't move her, but he's got to do something. He pulls her out of the car, carries her to the doctor's office, bangs on the door. 
elderly gentleman comes out, says, hey, can I help you? says, yeah, you have to help my wife. You're a doctor. The man says, I'm sorry, son. I don't practice medicine anymore. I retired years ago. The husband looks at the sign, looks back at the man. You a doctor or not? Because the sign says you're a doctor. And the correlation is simple. We, New Anthem, are a hospital for the spiritually broken, bloodied, and wounded. And as such, we can either take our sign down, start making this thing about us, and we're not a church for the rest of us. We're just a church for us. And we can store up our barns and we can make this thing amazing. But I know where I'd be if it weren't for a local church. Some of you know where you'd be if it weren't for a local church. So let's come up with a plan. A plan that makes God rich. Not a plan that makes us rich. A plan that lets people know you're welcome here. We've got hope in here. It's not about our money. It's about access to our heart. It's about pouring, not storing. It's about preventatively getting involved, not before it's too late. We don't need intervention. So what's your plan? That's the question. Every head bowed, every eye closed. God, thank you so much for blessing our ground with fertile soil. You've made us rich in so many ways. God, help us diagnose where we are in terms of what we should be giving, how we should be pouring, what we can do to see you move not just in this city, not just in this county, not just in this state, not just in this nation. God, we want to be a part of a move that changes the world. Help us understand what you've put in us with your son Jesus. That His power living in us can help change people's lives. That when we pour ourselves out, You'll fill us up. Help us spread the message of the Gospel. That Jesus has paid our price. And we can be forgiven. It has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Him. Help us play a part in your story. We love you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.